Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. Uh, From the place of the, the worship leader as well as the preacher, when I honestly tell you, you can recognize the, the energy in the room, the desire of someone who wanted to be here. Uh, you, can, you can sense it, you can feel it, it's very expressive. Even with the masks that you have on your faces today, uh, you still sense it. You're the first group that felt like you wanted to be here this morning. Now, why, why is that important, all right? In every church, one of the things that bind us is extreme loyalty to and for one another, all right? Now, masks kind of hide that loyalty because sometimes uh, if a person smiles, you don't recognize it. Um, if, if they're excited in something, you don't recognize it. And, and I refer to two things that make up a good church. Now, one is fellowship. Fellowship is you are encouraging someone else to grow in Jesus Christ. And that's vital. But I would suggest to you another sense that's encouraging. And that's spree de corps. Spree de corps means, um, you know, I cared that you just did something. Uh, I thought it was re- the, the color that you just painted your living room was really exciting. Uh, that fish that you caught camping last weekend. Oh, man, I'm jealous. Just that idea that we connect with one another. And right now, in the COVID-19 world that we live in, both of those things can be very, very hard to come by. And in fairness, for those of you who are watching, I think it's most difficult for you. Because church gets to be reduced to a two-dimensional world. You watch me, and you get to see the back of everybody's heads but you don't connect in a deeper and more richer and wonderful way. And those of us in here, we, we lose some of that intimacy right away, don't we, when we mask up. And so understand, it's very important as you come into church that you are giving something to each and every person that joins with you in, in celebrating our salvation in Christ. You give a little piece of you away each and every week. And don't forget how magnanimous, how wonderful, how important uh, your presence is as you give away a little bit of who you are in Christ. Today we're, we're going through a racing through Revelation. I've given you this little handout because in fairness, uh, it, 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 this makes it to the cutting floor. I, there's no way we can get it through. Um, I especially want you to see on the last page, there is a number of other views. Just because Pete preached it does not make it right. There's wonderful, godly men um, and women who have held positions in the past that aren't mine. And so if you will, though I will present what we're terming here as a futurist view, um, I in no way hold to a singular idea 
Guys, if you want to look at, at some others, uh, this moment's giving me a longer time because there's no fourth service, praise God, right now. So uh, if you want to look at, the Bible Project has got a, a wonderful kind of general look at the book of Revelation, and I found it to be very encouraging as they express themselves. Those of you who want to see a longer version of what I'm going to do today, and in fairness, a whole lot better. Uh, on YouTube, it's called a jet tour through Revelation done by John MacArthur. He will take an hour and seven minutes. I am not afforded that to you today. But my goal here ultimately is to encourage you and to challenge you in your walk with Christ. Uh, as, as I've said, this is a whirlwind tour. Next week, you want to be in prayer for Spencer uh, he is going to take probably as equally a strong whirlwind as he takes us through Matthew chapter 24. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, for those of you who are interested, you hear things this week, next week, and beyond, and you go, I, I, I don't know about that. Um, pen the question, type it into an email, send it to either Kevin, Spencer, myself, communitybible.us, and we will have kind of a round-robin 2 o'clock on Friday when we do our, our live streaming, uh, and we will, we will answer some of those questions and dialogue together. So if you have them, uh, just make them available. So as we begin today, I want you to understand there, there are three keys. If you really want to enjoy Revelation, there are three keys that really will help you unlock uh, this book. And the first key is revelation is a focus on jesus christ this is a book revealing the glory of the savior and his right to rule eternally this book is not written to frighten but to prepare you for the uncertain times in every area family too many times Uncertain times make us really wonder what we believe. They challenge us to what we believe. And it allows us to come back and say, I believe this. And you can put a stake in the ground. Revelation does that for us. It prepares us by saying, well, there's uncertain times. But we always know that Christ is the one as the active agent who's standing at the end waiting for us to have gone through the trial. The book is about Christ. Secondly, the key to unlocking Revelation is to realize its design is to bring the Bible to its conclusion. Too many times people accept Christ as their Savior, and they know John. They know the Gospels. And they come to a church in some ABF class is studying the book of Revelation. And they walk into that class and they walk out so confused that they don't know. Well, forgive me, it's like taking a novel from the library and then going in going, oh, I wonder how it ends. You have no idea of plot development. You have no idea of character development. And all of a sudden you're reading the conclusion and you have no comprehension of who, what, when, where, how, and why. And so you're stuck and it doesn't help. But the Bible is written with conclusion in mind, and the book of Revelation is its ending. More than two-thirds of the book of Revelation 
have shadows in the Old Testament. And so without an understanding of the Old Testament, you do not appreciate the conclusion. So don't run to the book of Revelation if you're a young believer. Or those of you who have been bogged down in the past in the book of Revelation, you'll find greater joy in knowing the Old Testament before you go to the book of Revelation, and then you'll find it an incredible delight. All right? And I want to suggest to you the third key is we are meant to understand Revelation. The word apocalypse, apocalypsis, where we get the idea of the apocalypse. All right? It sounds very foreboding in English. It means to take the lid off in Greek. So let's be fair. Some of the images that we're going to be seeing when you read the book of Revelation are poetic and abstract language. All right? So let me give you a suggestion. Unless there's a key to explain poetic or abstract language, leave it as poetic or abstract. So what I mean by that is this. In chapter 1, a voice talks to John, and it sounds like a trumpet. Rather than getting caught up with, well, what kind of voice sounds like a trumpet? Just simply go, Jesus must have had a loud, commanding voice. And it caught John's attention. When we get to, when we get to chapter 4, we're going to see Jesus Christ sitting on the throne. And that throne looks like a green emerald rainbow. What's a green rainbow look like? All right? Family, instead of finding someone to tell you what green means in Scripture, and trust me, having gone through a number of commentators this week, um, I found four different solutions to that, all right? Not one of them have any greater opportunity. And remember, John wrote this at the behest of Jesus Christ through the influence of the Holy Spirit, and the best he could come up with was like an emerald rainbow. But you'll hear preachers wax eloquent on what that rainbow means. They had neither the Holy Spirit, nor Christ. So, when you get to a point like that, leave it. Leave the mystery mysterious. And recognize that as he sits on the throne, he is creative. He is majestic. He is on high, and he is receiving worship. And allow your God and Savior to be as creative as any human monarch. If I took you to the, the books of Kings and Chronicles, you'd be able to read the, the throne room of King Solomon as he made his own throne. He made it with lions on six different steps leading up to his throne, which he inlaid with ivory. And the description of it is quite grand and wonderful. Well, forgive me if if King Solomon is going to go out of his way to make a throne that's extra special for himself to sit in, don't you think that God 
of God, the King of kings, would sit on a throne that bedazzles the universe? So leave the inexpressible and the undiscoverable right there and enjoy for what it has. Recognize that God has written this in its wonderful simplicity and he is giving you a blessing for just reading it. So verse 3 of chapter 1 can start us off. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So family, chapter 1 finds John in exile by the Roman government for representing Jesus Christ. They can't shut John up, and they choose not to kill him, so they put him in a timeout on the island of Patmos. There he's in the Spirit on Sunday, or in other words, he's under the, the, the Spirit's authority. And when he hears Christ talking to them, Christ empowers him to write to seven hand-picked churches who are now going to receive a letter from Jesus. That information will be not only an individual note to them, but the rest of the book of Revelation. Christ's glory, as Jesus tells him to write, is so overwhelming to John that he's emotionally overcome with death-like anxiety. Family, he sees God and just cannot, cannot imagine being in his presence. The Lord simply explains the purpose of writing the whole book. And in chapter 1, verse 19, we find this. Write, therefore, the things you have seen. In other words, write the vision he is experiencing right now. Write it. Put it down on paper. Those that are history as it is lived out. And the next time you read the book of Revelation, read chapters 2 and 3. And tell me if they don't have an obvious flavor difference between those two and chapter 4 as you begin there. You're going to find much more of a supernatural, abstract presence when you enter chapter 4. And those that are to take place after this, the verse continues, things that are in the future to experience. So family, he begins his book, and he writes to seven real churches on the west side of Turkey. I believe he writes these churches, and he gives them reminders of what they are. But these churches represent essentially seven kinds of church characteristics that we're going to see in every church that we ever get a chance to enter in on the planet. And family, I, I believe that these are just typical of any church you'll visit. And so if you will, let me give you a quick overview. Ephesus is the traditional dead church. Have you ever went into a church? Have you ever been a part of a church that did everything right? But you then looked down and went, wow, they don't love Jesus very much. They're so caught up into their rules and their belief system, there's no room for the Lord. Smyrna, the persecuted church, not a perfect place, 
but under such intense pressure that they trust God. And so much so, Christ says nothing negative about it. Pergamum, the compromising church, doctrinal integrity and morality often walk hand in hand. And so when doctrinal deficiency rises, you'll then often see immorality. And you'll find that in Pergamum. Thyatira struggles the same way, but it's even more shallow. Sardis is the dead church. They looked real, but had no interest in loving God. Have you ever walked into one of those churches? The majesty for, for God in terms of what is seen is incredible. But the bottom line is, is there's just death and decay, and there's no desire to be faithful to the Lord. You have the Philadelphia church, the faithful church. Finally, the Laodicea church, the half-hearted church. And so I think it's, it's very important for you to ask yourself from time to time, what kind of church are we? Remember, we is you too. What kind of church do you find yourself worshiping each and every week? And so, Jesus Christ sends a note to be careful. Chapter 4, Jesus Christ invites us to heaven. He is on the throne of splendor. Uh, family, he will be described with a number of references making him unique. He is on the throne, obviously, and in chapter 4, chapter 5, you're going to see him receiving worship, signifying who he is. He's the sovereign Lord of lords. But he's much more. Uh, he's reminded to hear that he is of the tribe of Judah, Going back to Genesis chapter 49, it signifies his humanity. He is of the heritage of David. Going back to Samuel, reminding us in Romans, showing he has the right to rule on a throne in Jerusalem. And finally, he is seven-eyed, seven-horned, seven-spirited. He is a standing, resurrected lamb. Family, now... This could be a slight pedism, but based on Psalms, seven or eyes, horns, and spirits often signify eyes, wisdom, horns, strength, spirits, the work of God. And so you have in the sevens, he's perfectly wise, perfectly strong, and perfectly filled with the Spirit of God. And so he, the resurrected lamb, the one that looks slain but is standing, is now the perfect redeemer, the perfect sacrifice for the redemption of mankind. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the lamb. Now, of all things, I want you to remember in the book of Revelation, I want you to, be, I want to, I want you to understand right now we're going to leave a lot of stuff. You're going to walk away going, he doesn't mention a lot about the Antichrist. Why? Forgive me, he's a creep anyway, right? We don't, we don't need to talk a lot, a lot. But if you really break the book down 27 times, he calls himself the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb. And if you will focus on the fact that Jesus Christ is the center theme of the book, you will not get bogged down in fear and uncertainty. 
focus on Christ. Family, he calls himself the lamb, but this is not an unusual, this is a, not the normal lamb, Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and lords with him are called chosen and faithful. So family, isn't that a wonderful description, not only of our Lord, but you and I? as we are with him. He is surrounded by 24 elders who have white garments and golden crowns. Family, I believe this is the church. Why do I say that? Because I believe they have, 20, they have crowns on their head and they are dressed in white. If, we, if I take you to chapter 19, in chapter 19 we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, the church. The 24 elders are there. One of the things that we are promised as family, as church people, is our deeds will be recognized as crowns in glory, our action plan. And we will wear white signifying our righteousness. Both of these are promised in the New Testament, seen in some level of fulfillment as the action plan on the book of Revelation, as it comes to a conclusion. So we get to see what happens to the church as it's in heaven seeing God unfold his plan. Family, I want you to understand, and this is one of the things that mark a futurist uniqueness often. I believe there are two stories to be told in the Bible. Now, we understand the plan of God, but there's two stories. The story number one is, what happens to the nation of Israel? In the nation of Israel, you have a number of promises. Number one, Abraham is given an unalterable promise. I will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you. I will bless your, your family. Well, that blessing is told, but to Judah, you will have the scepter. You will rule in Israel. And to David, your family will sit on a throne forever. Well, the only way the story ends good is if Jesus sits on a throne in Jerusalem. The story has to end there. And so if we find the church and Israel merging together, we don't find a natural end. But we do if we watch and wait and walk through Revelation. We'll talk about it and look at it in a minute. The second, we have to end the church. What happened to the church that rises up in that wonderful moment of time at Pentecost and then goes? Well, I want to suggest to you the church, this incredible amalgamation of every sort of ethnicity and background and personnel comes to the day where we are the bride of Christ and we will see that natural end and we're going to see the church here in chapters 4 and 5. We will see the nation of Israel coming into an understanding of who Jesus is in chapter 7. We will see them unfold until we finally see Jesus Christ sitting on a throne in Jerusalem in chapter 19. So we see the stories 
coming together in a wonderful phase. God's goal is to finish the promises made to Abraham and David. So as we now see chapter 6 begin to unfold for us, Christ has the right to open this unique document, if you will, the deed of the world given to him by the Father. Family, we see allusions to that in Psalms chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Let me just read it. It says, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So family, I want to suggest to you that he's holding the deed of the world which has been given to him by the Father, sealed with seven seals. Seven seals is a Roman literary or a Roman legal technique for their documents they couldn't be messed with. He can't accidentally open seven seals, all right? You've heard your little children. How'd that happen? Mom, it was an accident, all right? You don't have any accidents here if it's sealed seven times. And I want you to understand, Jesus Christ systematically opens the seven seals. Now, here's your encouragement, family. We want to see Christ, remember? Nothing happens in the book of Revelation by chance. Nothing happens by the will of man initially. Nothing happens that God didn't design. And so you're going to see God giving permission in the first four seals to a group of angels, the cherubim, to open the seals, and we open to the Antichrist. We're going to see his picture again in chapter 13. Who cares? He's a creep. He comes with a bow with no arrows. In other words, he comes as a strong man, and he gains his power mostly through diplomacy. But he comes at the design and the behest of God, who gives us one of the great one-word statements when he talks to the Antichrist, come, come. He then talks to war, come. He then talks to famine, come. He then talks to death itself, come. And if we have 7.6 billion people on our planet, and the Bible says here that one-fourth will die. We look at nearly two billion people from four seals will be losing their lives. Family, the fifth seal opens. No longer is it said, come. It doesn't mean that the design of God isn't as, as, as eminent. But it does mean that it lacks the same demand as persecution of those who are on the earth. Now, some of you say, well, wait a second, wait a second, you didn't mention anything about the rapture. Well, neither does the book of Revelation, all right? So just chill. But if you want to know where, do I, where, where is it put, it's somewhere between chapter 3 and chapter 4 in that white section. Okay? 
And a persecution will go out all over the land because if, if the anti-Christ is the against Christ that he's supposed to be, he's going to be attacking the people of God. And anything that God considers valuable, the anti-Christ will consider invaluable. And then we have the sixth seal. The sixth seal is ominous. The sixth seal is significant. The sixth seal really begins to turn up the heat, the intensity, if you will. This is the second worst earthquake ever to hit planet Earth. We'll, we'll talk more about it, but it's strong enough, it says, that islands disappear and, and mountains are flattened. But it also adds some sort of um, inner meteor shower as stars are freed now to come into our atmosphere. This is, this is a cataclysm unlike anything. And family, what I want you to see is the reaction of humanity. It says that rich and poor run to caves to hide from the Lamb of God, who they seem to know at this moment intrinsically is up to the actions that they are receiving. Chapter 8 continues, the last seal. And the last seal is so ominous that in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and 7, we hear action going on. We hear worship going on, explanation going on in heaven. In chapter 8, all things stop for a half an hour as they look at what this last seal has within it. And it is so potent, so incredible, so over the top in its destructive capacity that heaven is silent. So I want you to understand it leads us to what's referred to as the seven trumpets. And blasts one through four occur and they go quickly. One third of the world is burned by fire. One third of the oceans die. One third of the fresh water is poisoned. And the most odd, one, one fourth of the, of the hours of the day, or one-third of the hours of the day are altered. Sunshine is altered. Moonshine is altered. And stars are diminished and destroyed. Family, I, I can't tell you what that means. What would that do to our crop harvest if one-third of the day is removed? We already have a problem of famine going on anyway. What would happen now if the day is diminished and we can't see any harvest? What happens to the, to the, the oceans of the world as we know that currents and tides are related to the moon? What will happen? I don't know. What will happen when stars are gone? Genesis tells us this in chapter 1, Verse 24, he says, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. Family, I don't know if, if you comprehend the stars like I do. But you know, Elon Musk is all that excited about going up to Mars. Forgive me, 
Let me just tell you how that excites me. That's like getting up on a six-foot ladder and say, yep, honey, they're made by Sylvania. All right? A light gives me light so I can read down here. I don't care who made it, GE, Sylvania, who cares? My Redeemer made that one. I'm okay. I don't need to go there. But family, what happens now when stars are gone? If they're made for times and seasons, dating and and recognition of what's going on, what happens if the North Star is removed and is no longer there? The Southern Cross is no longer there. Stars that we identify, the Hopi Indians call Pleiades, a, a, a group of 12 to 15 stars. When it hits the horizon, they know it's time to plant. What happens if the stars are altered in such a way? We have no idea the impact. But I want, here's what I want to suggest to you. If I took you to Genesis, what we would see is the creation as it came in. And we saw this incredible development of God bringing his majestic gifts ultimately to the one who's going to be the caretaker of planet Earth, mankind. He says, man, I'm going to give you the oceans. I'm going to give you the land to develop. I'm going to give you all of the animal kingdom within it. Manage it to my honor and glory, and they don't. And I want to suggest to you, God is now taking it and saying, okay, fine. Let me remove them from you. You didn't, you didn't take care of them. You didn't manage them. You ran away from me and sinned. I'm taking them back. And we say just a little piece of that here. And again, it stops. And God sends a supernatural warning, and he says, woe, woe, woe to planet Earth. Please hear me out. In your Bible study, if Jesus Christ says, verily, I say to you, pay attention. If he says, verily, verily, I say to you, stop talking to the person next to you and really pay attention. If he says, verily, 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 I say to you, get your pen and paper out, write it down, do not talk, and pay attention. A three-time warning in Scripture or a three-time proclamation is special. It always is. So in Isaiah 6, you have holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. So in here, when you have woe, 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 Woe. And so, family, the, the fifth trumpet comes out. You have a supernatural, demonic world unleashed from the underworld. It is organized by a leader, Apollyon. It is ugly, and it's intent. It is not anything that's haphazard. The underworld demonic activity attacks those with the mark of the beast. And they are given a five-month painful period. Chapter 6 seems to have a number of pieces to it. In the first, the Euphrates River is dried up, freeing the eastern country that exists that has a 200 million man army to enter into present-day Iran, Iraq, 
Syria, and Jordan. And as they move west, and as you read within the text of Scripture, it has very poetic language, and potentially this is John's effort through the Holy Spirit to write what's going to be happening in the 21st century in modern warfare. But what we do see is this, and what is clear, that you will see another 2 billion people pass away. You now have seen half the planet of the earth in two moments of time. The seal continues in chapter 11, and it mentions two prophets of Christ's. They will, they will have a ministry very much like the prophet Elijah, who has the ability to stop rain and the ability of Moses and the plagues of Egypt because he, they have the ability to turn water into blood. And as these two come, when they speak, if they are defied, if they are attempted to be assassinated, the Bible tells us that fire comes from their mouth and destroys the individual that's trying to assassinate them. And they so frustrate the world that when the Antichrist finally sees them killed, they celebrate for three days. They leave their bodies there just to rot, almost as if it's decoration to the holiday. They send gifts to one another as if it's Christmas. And after three days, God says, hey, come on up here. And just like Lazarus, four days dead, these three days dead, in front of the television sets of the world, the streaming video or the streaming internet of the world, see them rise and enter heaven. And the warning to the world is that God's in control. And begins a continued revival in Israel. Trumpet 7 in chapter 16, verse 17, unleashes the final bowls of God's judgment. In quick succession, painful sores are inflicted on those who have the mark. Family, we're going to see the waters of the planet, first the ocean, then the fresh water, become like blood. And again, if you can, just sit back and think for a moment. God gave a creation to mankind that was very good. And they will now sit on this moment in a planet that is a stinking, smelly cesspool as things have died and are in decay all over the planet. The sun's rotation or the earth's rotation, one will change so that the intensity of the earth's sunlight becomes scorching. And while all of this happens, like Egypt's pharaoh in Exodus, the world continues their inability to repent. And Antichrist thinks in his stupidity that he can stand against the Lamb and through supernatural effort calls the world out to fight 
in the battle that you're very familiar with, you've heard from time to time, Armageddon. And family, I believe, as part of this setup, you're going to see what becomes the ultimately the worst earthquake ever to hit planet Earth. And again, it tells us that islands are destroyed, mountains flattened, and the country, or Jerusalem itself, is broken geographically into, through, into thirds. But for a moment, can you not imagine, use your imagination for a minute, the 6 o'clock news coming on and saying, the state of Hawaii is gone. Borneo is gone. The largest island of the world, the continent of Australia, is now fractured and splintered into a series of seven smaller islands. Can you imagine for a moment what must happen? The weather patterns of the world change as now a hundred pound, a hundred pound balls of water of hail fall down on planet Earth. Can you imagine what that will do to your Chevy? And here's the joy. Family, one of the reasons why we've walked away from all of the, the Antichrist, Satan, the, the false prophet, etc. What I want you to see is the redeemed will be preserved. Not because of the, their works are deserved and deserving, but because their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You see, we see all of this bad. God looks down and says, wait a second, got a story to tell you. The story he's going to tell you is, is I love mine. My, I love mine. Mine are with me. The chosen and the faithful, they're with me. And we look to an ending, not because we deserve it, but because God loves us. And family, we now come to the end of the book that's incredible and rich and wonderful. You see, God's got eternal life at his focus. And here, I believe, here is where you see the two endings, Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, and, if you will, the, the people of God, the church, joining together as one great bride, the, now coming in in Revelation chapter 21. Listen to what it says. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I need to stop right there. Family, I want you to please pretend with me. Husbands, you might know what I'm talking about better than the wives. Wives, think for a moment. You're wearing your wedding dress. You're looking at somebody else wearing their wedding dress. Guys, do you remember what, what it was like for your bride to walk down the aisle? Do you remember that moment? All right. What were you captivated by? Did you really think, man, my wife's wearing a really good dress today? Is that what really caught you? If that's the case, baby, you better make dinner today. All right? Because, man, when my wife is coming down, my future, my I do, I say, oh, baby. Now, you see, all of chapter 21 and a little bit of 22 begin to describe the dress. Forgive me. Who cares? Who cares about the dress? 
Because New Jerusalem exists. Because Jesus Christ says, I go to prepare a place for you. This is just my clothes closet, guys. What a privilege it is. Because the one who began and wrote the story in Genesis finishes the story in Revelation and invites me to join him because of the cross for all eternity. What a thrill it is to know that privilege. And as we walk through Revelation, please, I want you to rejoice that you have the chance to know that Jesus Christ cared enough for you that though he deserves the majesty, he went to a cross to provide us the privilege of being with him for all eternity. Father in heaven, I'd ask that you'd watch over. Allow us to know the privilege of being followers of you right now. Dear God, uh, in this COVID world we live in, may, may we persevere. Dear God, when it's inconvenient, let us remember we're still your kids and wear a mask. When it's, when it's painfully aware that people are suffering, let us remember you've got it under control. Father, just as Revelation reminds us, there's nothing a moment in any time in history that you are surprised by what's happening. And dear God, let us persevere and have confidence that you're in control. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.